0: Before we get started a couple notes this is the first episode of a two-part series so be sure if you like today's episode to check out next week's episode where we'll close out a lot of the key ideas here and hopefully add a bunch of entertainment along the way as i usually strive to do here also this episode is not an explicit episode I believe the ideas here are powerful enough to share with your friends and to share with your family, including children. So while sometimes on the program, we have fun with some adult language or include lyrics in videos and songs that are not suitable for younger ears, I have intentionally kept this series clean. And safe for younger ears. There's just one exception in today's episode that you should be careful of depending on your tastes in terms of parenting if you have children and the the age of your kids, which is there's a song lyric in here that has to do with the eyes and uh, a violent act that could be performed to them. So leave it to your discretion. Uh, You may want to listen ahead. And uh, just so you know, I will make clear when we get there that we're going to talk about that and you can skip forward if you need to. For those out there who are parents, I'm a parent as well. And I don't want to catch anyone off guard. I'm really excited about this series. It gets into a lot of philosophical issues regarding leadership and just thinking generally. That I've been stewing on for a long time, and and finally I think have coalesced here. So really excited and proud to bring it to you. As always, if you have other thoughts, comments, reactions, let me know on Instagram at Sri the Warrior Poet. That's S R I the Warrior Poet, and Sri actually sincerely hope you enjoy the episode. One of the benefits, one of the many benefits of having a teenager is that you are kept apprised of pop culture as you get older. And I pride myself on at least staying apprised and, and more than staying apprised, staying appreciative of what younger folks among us are inventing every day in terms of language and music. Etc. It's one thing to know about these things and talk about it at the water cooler with other middle aged people. It's another to see the value in these things, even if they seem inane on the surface. There's a phenomenon now on TikTok, which is manifesting. So, If that's not entirely clear what that means, uh, some of you out there, your history wonks or, or American patriots will be thinking of Manifest Destiny from back in the day, which on its face, you know, sounds great as you're a school child learning about this thing in America. Although I think it's safe to say with some perspective an outsider would look at that concept and the fact that it's being taught to school children in the same way that we view fundamentalist doctrines being taught to school children in other societies and not just looking down upon it, not just thinking it's stupid, but thinking that there's something ethically and morally wrong with training children in this manner. If we recall what manifest destiny means, it is the idea that the United States had a God-given mission to expand, and uh, especially to expand westward. But I think that included north and south. Uh, It's reminiscent of a sort of caliphate concept, and uh, there was violence associated with this, right? Uh, A lot of what happened to the Native Americans, think Trail of Tears, was justified based upon this concept of manifest destiny. Manifesting is this idea that essentially the universe, a deity, if you want to think about it that way, has already granted you your wish. Apparently, you've got teenagers on TikTok talking about how They wanted their crush to get back to them or reach out to them. And, you know, they just manifested it to themselves. And sure enough, their crush reached out to them. Things like that. Now, I think there is actually something powerful with treating things as if they've already happened in a way. Thinking about yourself as already having accomplished a goal and gaining some confidence and reassurance out of that. I think that actually has worked for me in the past. I didn't really believe that the universe conspired in any way to hand something to me because the universe certainly didn't hand me getting through buds. I did that by myself. Maybe there was some luck along the way. It was a good thing that I didn't get hurt in any serious way and not make it through training. And of course, maybe my upbringing and my DNA and all sorts of things helped me through that experience as well as my teammates going through training, but the universe didn't really conspire. However, there was the Naval Academy. I spoke in an earlier episode about how when I found out I was going to a ship instead of SEAL training, it was one of the worst days of my life at the Naval Academy in the service selection process there. There was a friend of mine, became a friend after that experience because I think that day was also for him one of the worst days of his life. His name was Grant. Grant was a wrestler. He had a brother in the same class, which was super interesting. So everyone knew who they were. Grant was a wrestler, which can be an odd breed, but also a scholar a sort of warrior poet in his own right. Grant and I were discussing how we were going to get to the SEAL teams at some point, despite having to go to ships first. And his advice, he was a little older and it it stuck with me for the days, weeks, months, and years, many years now since then of let's just assume it's already happened. We've already made it through the surface ship experience for five years, maybe more, maybe less, hopefully less. It was less for me. I lucked out and was able to ladder transfer after a year and a half on a ship. But he would, he would joke around every time we would meet and say, hey, remember that time we were on a ship and we got through that? Man, that sucked. But you know, we're, we're here now, something to that effect. He he said it much much better and in a much more entertaining manner than I did just then. So so please uh, humor me. You had to be there, but as I was on the ship dealing with that experience, which was great and wonderful in many ways, and there's a lot of amazing people who serve aboard ships. So I don't mean this to in any way dishonor their service because we have a lot to thank for our entire navy, our entire military. All our first responders, and far be it from me to belittle anyone's service, but it just wasn't for me. And it's it's not the life that I was looking for. So in those dark days of getting ready for engineering inspections and dealing with some leaders who were a mix of characters and competence, there were some great leaders as well. There was one I had who I, I termed it stream of consciousness tasking. He sometimes could not resist the urge to tell me a detail that needed to be done, that he would shout over the shower curtain as I was taking a shower. And uh, I, I, I let him have it at one point to please give me some space. I am in the shower right now. Uh, it, can, it can probably wait. It was by no means an emergency. We weren't at general quarters. Okay, the Nixie team away. Set general quarters. Set general quarters. General quarters, general quarters, long hands, battle stations. And it was in those times and the times that I was tired from the balls to four watch or the two to seven balls to four, meaning zero, 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 zero or midnight in Navy terminology or two to seven, meaning two in the morning to seven in the morning. At least in the two to seven, you get to watch the sunrise, which is, which is nice. But after those, after those watches, I certainly didn't feel like working out, but thinking about it in that manifested terminology had a benefit. But there's also a dark side to taking things for granted. By the way, manifesting was big in the 90s, apparently. I somehow missed that craze. Maybe it was just amongst middle-aged people and I was much younger than Many of you listening weren't born at that time. You know when the 90s was big though? The 80s. And the band responsible was the Pixies.
1: The first time I, I heard the Pixies would have been around 1988. I found it just about the most compelling music outside of Sonic Youth in the entire 80s. uh, uh, uh,
0: uh, 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 uh. That's not me just working on my vocal cords. It's actually a chorus. There's a song, Black Math. That's not Black Maths, although I think Jack Black should have titled the song Black Maths. Maths, as in what British people call the subject of math. He should have called it Black Maths just to have the double entendre with an Ozzy Osbourne song or something like that. That song is actually pretty great. It is by, fuck, Break Break. The song Black Math is actually pretty great. It's by the White Stripes off the Elephant album. That's the same album as Seven Nation Army, Black Math is track two. Not that anyone really listens to tracks in any sort of sequence anymore. It's not like you're going to pull out your Discman right now and go to track two to listen. Check it out on Spotify. I'll have a link in the show notes. No doubt the White Stripes and every alternative band of the 90s and 2000s and today took some inspiration, even if they don't realize it, from the Pixies, almost all of them, again, they might not realize it, almost all of them have some influence from Nirvana and how they changed the game from how music was conceived of in the 70s and 80s. And Nirvana, Kurt Cobain was heavily influenced by the Pixies. There's a kind of magic going on in some areas of math. There's a book, Road to Reality. It's a a book about physics. I think the subtitle is A Guide to the Laws of the Universe. It's a pretty ambitious text, but for anyone who would watch a Neil deGrasse Tyson video or read some more challenging books, maybe you've read A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking, then I would recommend perhaps... Getting from the library, cause it's pretty expensive. I got it as a gift uh, and it's again, pretty long. If you all live near me, I would just loan you the book because taking it on is a little bit of a commitment to going page by page. The author Roger Penrose though, does talk about some things in terms of magic, at least one topic. I'm, I haven't made it through the entire book yet. I'm getting there but he talks about complex numbers. A complex number is the idea that you can take a square root of a negative number. This is not a math program, so we're not going to dive super deep in there, but many of you will realize that you cannot, by traditional rules of arithmetic, take a square root of a negative number. And there's a magical number, complex number, a Variable constant something like that (laughs) again, not a math expert not a math show Called I and I is the square root of negative one So that I squared equals negative one, but the point here is not to go into Why such a thing is necessarily valid or why we'd even use such a magical quantity but rather the point is that for a very long time, even though the notion of a square root of negative one dates back for a very long time, perhaps millennia, it was very hard for the scholars of any era since the ancient Greeks up until I think the Renaissance to accept that such a quantity, such a concept might be valid. It was the kind of concept that could blow one's mind. For those patient enough to stick with that question, some amazing truths were revealed. And once you accept that such a complex number can be valid, you actually are able to solve some problems that you couldn't solve before. And the magic that Roger Penrose talks about is you can solve problems you couldn't solve before, but where the answers don't even involve the complex number. They don't involve that I, that square root of negative one. And so the concept of I, this thing that never existed for a long time and people struggled to accept, And which for most of us in the real world, you don't see negatives a lot, let alone square roots of negatives anywhere visibly, even though I think there is some lurking beneath, beneath the surface in terms of quantum physics, et cetera. But this negative one, the square root of negative one allows us to do things that serves as a tool that if it hadn't been invented, gives us solutions to thorny problems that people had struggled with for a long time. Now, this kind of black math is not necessarily a truth in and of itself, but a tool for dealing with the world. And people often confuse the idea of eternal truths with things that are simply tools, and protocols for day-to-day life. Another example from math of a tool for dealing with the world is geometry. The average school child, let alone high school or college, and probably person walking around today does not realize that there are alternative geometries. Many of us are used to the Cartesian coordinate plane, but there are multiple other geometries that are valid across uh, all, all of math or, or rather I think mathematicians would say they're internally coherent and can deal with uh, a set of a set of problems in a consistent way and things that are actually important and that we use that geometry for again that is not a truth in and of itself but if you take it as a truth in itself It prevents you from discovering deeper insights and developing new tools for dealing with the world. These kinds of tools, these kinds of fundamental methods and concepts and to some extent truths are really the things that are earth shattering. They're really the things that are disruptive in our world. While most of us tinker around and optimize, and just do tasks, there are some people who are thinking about things on a much more fundamental level and not taking things for granted. They realize that these protocols are just that, constructs of the men and women that came before them. They're shadows on the cave walls in Plato's terminology. They are representations of the world, not the world itself.
1: God, it's so grieve you want you to know, to know about you, but I'm Shahan and Lucia. I'm Shahan and Lucia. I'm Shahan and Lucia. I'm Shahan and Lucia.
0: I want to grow. I to be. Perhaps the most accessible example is maps of the world. For those past a certain age, in every classroom you were in, there was a map of the world. And as you went from grade to grade, you would notice that teachers had different types of maps of the world. I can't remember all the specific names for these maps But surely they'll ring a bell to many in this audience. But you've got the one that's sort of cut up like an orange. And so at the top and bottom, you've got these cutouts where Antarctica and the Arctic Circle are. And where Greenland appears more like its normal size. Meanwhile, you've got the one that's a pure rectangle and where Greenland is enormous, (laughs) as big as North America, even though in reality, it's not that big. And there are others as well. And so these different representations of the world are simply that, but have their own usefulness. Similarly, if you are on the ground doing land navigation as a SEAL, or I've got a buddy who's a test pilot, and if he's above the earth navigating, one has to be sure that, They know and that their computer systems know what map datum they are using. There are many different datums for representing where one is on the earth. And this is separate from the map problem I described earlier, but closely related to it. If you're using the wrong datum, you end up in a very different location. And for someone new to land navigation, this idea of different datums is something that kind of blows your mind. You just take for granted that there would just be one way, one eternal truth for how to represent one's position on the earth. But this is definitely not the case. And presuming it is, we'll wind up with you being very, very, very lost
1: in europe there was such a lot of sludge in america at the time i think uh pixies had a real hard time uh pushing their way through to the surface
0: i can pretty safely assume everyone in the audience here is a podcast listener if you're looking for more content which i think we all are in the podcast world the podcast world is getting ever richer with content But I highly recommend 99% Invisible. On its face, it is a design podcast. However, it really consists of explaining the world, explaining the stories and protocols that we have in our everyday lives. Why things are the way they are there's one spin-off podcast they have called articles of interest and it's all about clothing i worked for not one but two fashion startups i am not a fashion expert by any means but it was truly an education at one place i was in charge of figuring out how the algorithms recommended certain jeans and dresses and tops to women and, and why would they they would fit and whether they would like that style. And it's, uh, it's kind of ironic that, that that sort of technological problem was entrusted to me, given my level of knowledge about women's fashion. On this Articles of Interest podcast, though, there's one episode on pockets and the origin of pockets. And it kind of blows your mind because one assumes that, A, either pockets always existed, which would be a stretch, no pun intended. At the same time, how pockets originated as little sacks that you would just tie in a string around your waist, separate from the rest of your clothing, and that they were called pockets, uh, just sort of blew my mind. I'm not sure if I'm alone there. In the core 99% Invisible podcast, recently, I'll link to it in the show notes, there's one called Fracture. That's F-R-A-K as in kilo, T-U-R. It's a German word, describes a typeface. And that particular variant of typeface ladders up to an overall family of, of typefaces called black letter, which was really popular in Europe. If you read something in Europe at one time in a book, printing press derived or based upon someone writing it by hand with a quill, it was done in black letter. It's all you knew. It is what reading was. You couldn't separate language from black letter, except that eventually another typeface overcame it, which is the Roman typeface, which is how most of our books are written right now. Most fonts are, are actually Roman. I highly recommend you listen to that episode of 99% Invisible, again, Fracture, to get more information on why they're talking about it and why it's interesting. But it makes you think about what that world is like where everyone assumes reading and words look a certain way and are a certain way. And where there can be something totally different and it changes the way people perceive their language and their culture. In that vein, some languages are just more efficient. They might be more efficient and compact and result in a faster relay of communication. They might be more narrow in terms of the number of words. And so with that narrowness of word choice, the nuance is left to physical cues, nonverbal cues and context and subsequent explanations, which ironically makes it Less efficient. Some languages are more precise. And so there's higher fidelity between what someone says and what someone understands. By the way, if you have not seen the movie High Fidelity, you definitely should. Political systems, of course, have pros and cons. There's turnover between political systems on a regular basis. And we have a diversity of political systems in the world now. I remember. As a history student though, being surprised in high school when I learned that nation states weren't always a thing. You grew up as a kid thinking there are countries with borders and united languages and united cultures and single currency regimes, a government that rules effectively over all the people within those boundaries. But until the Treaty of Westphalia and slightly before that, the idea of a nation state wasn't a thing. It didn't really exist. And things were much more inchoate. Things were much more diffuse in terms of governmental structures and how peoples were united. And then one of the hardest things for Americans to grasp is that their political system may not be blessed by God. Their political system may not be holy, and they are often in denial. We, I should say, I'm an American, we are often in denial about how good our political system might be, even relative to some others. And there's a general lack, I think, of creativity when it comes to political systems, because those in charge have no incentive to be creative about that. And any attempts to be creative about it are amount to violent revolutions that uh, most people don't want anyway. And this last one won't be hard for Americans to believe is that some cultures are quote unquote better than others. Now, I'm not saying the American culture necessarily is, although again, there's a tendency to quote de Tocqueville and others And looking at the lucky history that we've had in the United States as evidence of some divine plan that manifests destiny. And so the tendency is to inflate how good the culture is. But the truth is, if you think about it, some cultures are better suited towards their people's prosperity. And I'm not necessarily saying that the American culture is the best at that many of you will probably point out evidence that that proves otherwise but that's not the point here the point is that different cultures do differ in terms of the well-being however we measure that of their people now it is interesting that culture is a loaded word and often when culture gets brought up in a political context It has a particular meaning, usually a conservative meaning. All the people I can think of right now who champion culture in their remarks are exceedingly right-wing. You've got Dan Quayle from the 90s, the vice president for Bush 41. I can think of, you've got Benjamin Netanyahu, prime minister of Israel. And of course, you've got the culture warrior himself, Bill O'Reilly. I can't read it. There's no there's no words on it. Okay. Sure. There's no words there. To play us out. What does that mean? To play us out? I I can't do it. We'll do it live. Okay. We'll do it live! F it! Do it live! I can I'll write it and we'll do it live. F thing sucks. Think about this for a second. What if we had eight days a week? (laughs) What if we took the Beatles at their word and gave ourselves eight days a week to love someone or do whatever it is we wanna do? What would change in society? Think about the weekly meetings you have. What if we could have 10 days a week and have that weekly meeting less often? That would be amazing. So many things are done on a weekly basis. Going to school five days a week is a direct function of seven days a week. After the French Revolution or maybe mid-French Revolution, because it lasted forever in various phases, there was an attempt to have a different number of days per week. Unlike the amount of time in a day, period, the number of hours in a day could be different. It's rather arbitrary. And the number of days in the week, number of days in a year, don't tie out in terms of adding up to an even number of weeks. With 52 weeks, you've still got a day and a quarter left over in your year. That's 364 days for 52 weeks. And then you've got a day and a half left over by my quick mental math there. Meanwhile, on the other end of the spectrum from planning our our weeks and our, our work is conventions of beauty. Now, there might be some eternal truths in our DNA as to what men and women are attracted to in each other and what we're generally attracted to, period, outside of sexual and romantic love. But conventions of beauty change through time. Particular interpretations of femininity and masculinity also change over time. It can be hard to grapple with that, that what you and I are attracted to may be in large part shaped by culture. and those around us and marketing and products, particular perfumes that are in fashion, particular clothes that are in fashion, particular physiques, right? If you look at the classical European paintings, all of the women have much larger and healthier bodies than today. Although body image is changing a lot over the last few years, but still, The point remains the same, that what people find beautiful, even without all the trappings of products and clothes, may be not an eternal truth, per se.
1: Three elements, I think, made them important as a sound band. One was their pure dynamics, the very obvious now, but not obvious at the time, dynamic of keeping the verse uh, extremely quiet and then getting erupting into a blaze of noise for the choruses. That was one element. The second element was the interesting juxtapositions that Charles brought together uh, of quite sordid material at times, I suppose.
0: I was thinking the other day that pretty much all of us have become amateur epidemiologists. AI is improving every day. And I think it's only a matter of time before all of us have not only so much information at our disposal, but the means to navigate it effectively. In a sense, the need to have a person called an epidemiologist will decrease in my opinion. In my vision, most of us in the future will become like operators. And I don't mean like SEAL operators. I don't mean special operations forces in the military. I mean, people at a console, at a keyboard or better plugged in, of course, into the information matrix, but just navigating that and making use of particular concepts and learnings effectively, because AI would be able to do it all so much better than us That the key skill will be the navigation and leverage of that information as opposed to the specialty and judgment itself. Now, this idea of specialties disappearing may be completely wrong, but the idea that they will go away and that we'll all be operators In a sense, information operators will be the general profession. Specialization of labor will decrease. That idea, even if you disagree with it, is revolutionary. And the point here, the point never here is to pat myself on the back in any way or credit myself with a new idea because other people have probably thought of that idea before, but rather to demonstrate the concept that we're talking about. This is not about black swans. We've talked about Nassim Taleb and black swans before. It's about something much more fundamental. It's about questioning the reality as we know it and recognizing the difference between truth and protocol. Ultimately, if we can do that, then we can come up with ideas that aren't optimizations and in the end are much more impactful and thus much more important. <laughs> doing, managing, engineering, planning, goals, leading, strategy, mission. That list I read to you right there is a hierarchy of scope and tasks of people in a value chain that I just jotted down. So to put it in, Plainer English than the wonky phrasing I just gave it there is that we got to do stuff. In the end, someone's got to press a button. Someone's got to ship that Amazon package to you. Someone's got to actually deliver your mail. In the end, as long as we have physical mail in this world, above those things though, that doing the hands-on keyboard in the tech world, above that are a whole bunch of activities. And those activities have different scopes. You as a leader, your job is to level up. Now, in the podcast world, in the content world, if I'm to be called an influencer, the gospel is niche down, niche down, niche down, and then niche down again. The idea is to provide the most value to the people who really love what you're producing. I hope all of you love it. On the other hand, if you are a leader, my advice to you is level up, level up, level up, and then level up your thinking some more. If you narrow your scope of thinking to where you are right now at the given moment, you'll end up with suboptimal solutions, suboptimal ideas, and you'll miss that bigger picture that we're talking about. Of course I included leadership activities, not at the top wrong, but that assignment of a mission is ultimately what the leader is about in that strategy. So Don't take that hierarchy I gave you to be strict. The ideas that matter should blow your mind a little bit. You're never going to get to those blow your mind ideas in an incredible niche, at least as it pertains to business. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it depends on what the idea is. Maybe it depends on what the problem is that we're trying to solve. But the ideas that come to my mind that are mind blowing matter a ton. That doesn't always mean that (laughs) ideas that matter need to blow one's mind, but still theory of relativity blows one's mind. Once you even understand the basics of it. Specialization of labor is something that was totally incomprehensible to people before Adam Smith and eventually Henry Ford. The idea of comparative advantage in trade, David Ricardo being the economist who laid that out, it blows one's mind that there can be benefits to some of those scenarios. But in actuality, there are. It's inherently improvable that free trade is beneficial to both sides. The thing is, it doesn't necessarily require an academic education that is in-depth to the level of a PhD to come up with many of these ideas. That's not always how the people who are most impactful on human history go about things. Richard Feynman is a prime example of someone who got to his ideas through critical thinking and an inquisitive mind more than the academic upbringing that he had had. Same thing for Einstein. His thought experiments are what led him to his revelations, not the math itself, although he needed that to support his theory and prove it out. It is that inquisitive mind that I'm recommending here to you. And it's what Roger Penrose, in that black math illustration that we talked about earlier in the episode, talks about in terms of complex numbers. The magic of a square root of negative one was only arrived at because the mathematicians who ultimately came up with the explanatory concepts to underpin it, they were patient. They had no idea of how square root of negative one would be used if they could come up with how such a thing could be explained but they stuck with it because they wanted to peer into truth itself. And they had a passion for that as an end and not how much money it would make them. And similarly, if you stick with things in a business sense, sometimes it pays to have that passion for the truth over the practical return you will get. and as we saw in that example for I, leading to solutions that weren't possible without it, that provided these magical outcomes. If you focus on that truth and that ideal outcome and be patient with those questions that you ask, those why questions, and question all the protocols around you, then you might arrive at, some magical solutions.
1: It's done so effortlessly, and it, it's done with such a sense of fun and enthusiasm. There's a great sense of humour underlying everything that Charles does. Three were the um, the colours that um, Santiago provided as a guitarist. I think, uh, as a guitar player, he's terribly underrated. It's much more about
0: uh,
1: texture. He 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 supplies extraordinary
0: texture. People in business talk a lot about, quote unquote, transformational vision. I wanna use air quotes there because the phrase is kind of meaningless and is just inane corpse speak. Those who ask for you to deliver a transformational vision seldom are capable of having a transformational vision themselves in my experience. But the key here is to realize that if you really wanna deliver a transformational vision, Transformational vision comes from transformational ideas. Transformational ideas come from radical conceptions. And radical conceptions come from deep perception. I'll say that again. Transformational vision comes from transformational ideas. You can't come up with transformational ideas unless you have radical Conceptions of the world. And the way you develop those radical conceptions of the world is to have deep perception, to stare at something for a long time, and to wonder how it works. Wonder being the motivating energy here. And if you wonder, it will allow you to ask the right questions. And wisdom is all about asking the right questions.
1: One of the strongest songs that I heard at the time was Debaser. Space of Religion, two very basic American subjects. (laughs) Uh, The the two subjects closest to the American heart, I think. The pure strength of him on stage, this this kind of mass of screaming flesh, (laughs) this kind of very imposing figure. I always thought there was a psychotic Beatles in there, you know?
0: And now's that time of the program where we get all the way wet. Footnote number one, I've spoken about Friedrich Hayek before. That may grate on some of you. I don't mean to cram Friedrich Hayek down your throat. This is not an economics program. This is not a politics program, but there is one insight that he has related to some of the things we talked about with political systems and culture, which is the emphasis on values. So when we talked about whether a culture can be better for certain things, it depends on what you're valuing. And of course, the problem with organizing and deciding what culture we're gonna have or what political system we're gonna have or what law we're gonna pass is that we all differ on values. So I I don't wanna lose sight of that, both on that remark, but also on the rest of the concepts we talked about here. If you don't have alignment with people, on values, or if you're not sure yourself about what you value, then you might not end up with a sound answer on what is the best path, what is the best option, or even what is the right question to ask. Finally, we mentioned the Pixies early on in this episode. The Pixies are one of my favorite bands if you have not been exposed to them do yourself a favor and dive into a bunch of their stuff. And keep in mind the whole time that they were extremely influential in Western alternative music. They were formed in 1986 in Boston, Massachusetts. They're made up of Black Francis, Joey Santiago, Kim Deal, and David Lovering on drums. Kim Deal was on bass. Joey Santiago, guitar. I love the stage name Black Francis. You heard David Bowie in a bunch of fills there talking about how great the Pixies are and why they're great. Such a great analysis by David Bowie. And one commenter on YouTube, I'll have the link in the show notes to the David Bowie interview. One commenter said, just by having David Bowie comment on you, That is such an immense compliment on what you've achieved. And I agree. David Bowie talks about Charles a lot. That's because Black Francis' real name is Charles. Go figure. No one actually named their kid Black Francis. The other Pixies-related fills you heard were piano covers of the song Debaser. One was by a guy named Christian Damico, D apostrophe, A-M-I-C-O. And I really love his energy, although his vocals are a bit screechy, uh, but I, I think I really love that. And I'm gonna add that to some sort of playlist. Meanwhile, the other one with sort of not as good piano, but better, more melodic vocals, kind of almost smith's like if I recall correctly um the video is is actually kind of weird um props to the guy for for putting it up, although he should uh you know consider sort of the, the video genre maybe in in different ways or or put time directly into that um it's by Colin's surname though <laughs> a uh, nerdy joke by mr Colin there, but uh I, I found that to be. Pretty cool as well. This is the part of the show where I warn parents that we've got a little bit of graphicness, not explicit, but maybe sensitive for younger ears. So go ahead and skip forward about a minute and a half from here, 90 seconds, and you'll be good. The song DeBaser is based off of a film by Luis Buñuel and the famous Salvador Dali, who I really like. I've got some paintings by Dali in my home, and I'll feature those on Instagram if you follow after this episode. Again, at Sri, the warrior poet. The movie most famously pictures a woman's eye being slit by a razor. And there's all sorts of other nonsense that, happens in the film as well i watched it in college i don't remember much except for that one scene i don't know that it's worth watching a second time although interestingly there's a quote from wikipedia where frank black says the following i wish buñuel were still alive he made this film about nothing in particular with my stupid pseudo scholar naive enthusiast avant garde Amateurist way to watch Un Chien Andalu, and then in parentheses it says twice. I thought, yeah, I'll make a song about it. So apparently, Black Francis, aka Frank Black, watched it twice. So, you know, figure it out for yourself. Your mileage may vary. He goes on to talk about how Un Chien Andalu sounded too French. That's the movie Un Chien Andalou that DeBaser was based on, no pun intended. So he changed it to Un Andalusia. Regardless, the phrase means an Andalusian dog. The premise of the song Debaser is questioning all morality, all art, all truth, in a sense. Like Buñuel did in Un Shen Andalu, we all can question the protocols around us. Debaser is not just an interesting song lyrically, but it's one of the Pixie's most famous songs and one of my favorites. I love Frank Black's vocals in this song. They're just so full of that teen angst that all of us, even those who aren't teenagers anymore, love. It's got a stereotypically simple, but infectious riff throughout the song. Verse and chorus, and I love how Kim Deal chimes in, just just sort of speak singing debaser every now and then. And I think it's a feature, not a bug, that sometimes her timing is a little off. Her timing is not consistent about when she comes in, and I think that's I, I think that's totally intentional. But even if it's not. Even if she was uh, a little, a little drunk or a little tired, as she was chiming in there, the result is pure amazing. I don't know about you, but as Frank Black says in the song, "I want to grow up to be be a debaser."
1: Got me moving, slicing up.
0: Warrior Poet is a property of Rainiac Productions. If you like the Warrior Poet, there's more great content on Instagram. Follow Sri, the Warrior Poet, on Instagram. That's S R I, the Warrior Poet. You can also get to know me on a personal level by following Sri actually on Instagram as well. The Warrior Poet is produced by Laddie with special contributions by Spoonman and me. No, 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 Kevin. Mina, do it. Spita. Ah!